Join me as we pray. Father, we thank you that no one is more loving than you, and we certainly are under no presumption that we could be more benevolent than you. We ask that you would forgive us for trying to, quote, love in a way that's opposite or inconsistent with your love. You are love. And we pray, Lord, that your love would course through us as you say through Paul in Galatians, especially to the household of faith, especially to your people, and that the world might know we're your disciples because of the way we love. So help us to love with your love, including uh, the proverbial tough love that really is a, uh, a deep desire to see people follow and be conformed into the image of the Lord Jesus. So help us now as we think about the theme and topic of church discipline, particularly the practical applications. We want to be faithful to your word. Open our minds and hearts to see in Scripture what is there and to act accordingly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, as you can see, um, Matt is with me and we are going to guide, I believe we received nine specific questions from last week's growth session at this time and the, uh, the paper the elders released to our church members. I believe we received nine questions. We have listed all of those questions, some in summary form, none with names attached, and we're going to try to engage every one of them. Since Thursday at noon, we've received a few more questions, which are excellent, one of which I hope we have time to get to today, but we're going to go with the folks that uh, gave their questions first, first, and then we will uh, pick up from there. So this is our summer topical series. Today's topic is church discipline, and it is a Q&A. The Qs have already been submitted. The As are coming now. Uh, last week, we did some teaching on the doctrine and practice of discipline, and today we are doing a Q&A, as I mentioned. So let me just say our intention, I just said it a moment ago, but I'm going to say it as clearly, clearly as I can now. We aim to respond to every single question, even questions that have been embedded with multiple questions. So please help us try to be helpful. We're not under the delusion that we know the answers. In fact, I can say personally, I'm certain that I do not know the answers to some of the good questions we've received. But I do want to be Berean and search the scripture. But we want you to know any question you ask is certainly not intentionally being avoided. So if we fail to respond, our desire is exactly the opposite. <laughs> we want to engage every question we have received. So today, we're responding to questions about the primer. That was last week's teaching and the paper we released to our members. Until June the 19th, that's a week from today, our church members can submit questions to the elders, not about the primer, you can do that too, but especially about the care matters that our elders updated our members about last Sunday. We have already received questions about both. Today, we will deal not with the recommendation from last Sunday, but with the primer and the teaching on church discipline. So we have just precious few minutes. We, said, we have, as I said, nine questions. Here we go. The first question, and there were several in this category, 
is related to listening to the church, and this is the way one of the questions read. How is the weight of, quote, the church, that's Matthew 18, 17, on the individual under discipline the same as the individual listening to the church? And then here's the particular question. The wording in Scripture seems to be the same in each step as far as listen to. So when the one approaches in verse 15, if he listens to you, you've won your brother. When the two or three witnesses who've confirmed every fact approach in verse 16, if, you, if they listen, you've won your brother. The exact same wording that is true is in verse 17. So the question is, as the elders have put it, we believe that there's a voice the church has that's not necessarily audible. But it's the collective weight of the awareness in the unrepentant sinner's conscience that their whole congregation is now informed. That is a voice. That is a message. And that is what we believe Jesus means the person ought to listen to to be more specific. This is our answer to that question. Our aim in the primer was to remove any and all unbiblical expectations on church members who suppose they cannot vote to affirm to excommunicate someone whom they have not personally spoken with about the sinful issue. That would be an argument from silence in a very concerning way. To suppose that every single member must talk to the person personally or else they can't vote on the recommendation that's made. We don't believe Jesus taught that. So, what we're now saying is a correction of ourselves as elders. I want you to listen as carefully as you can, especially if you've been here for a while. We're seeking to convey in our current position that we do not believe that Jesus intends, in Matthew 18, 17, for every single church member to talk to the person in view. To suggest that Jesus' words imply an obligation that all should, as we used to say, go after the person. That's the way we used to put it. Is, we believe, to impose an unbiblical expectation on the flock. Any are welcome to pursue the sinner. At least one member should do so. But in the text, none in the church are required to do so. Our recommendation for who should then go toward the person once the church is informed, we would say that it would generally be the people in the body who are closest in relationship to, those, to that person. That just makes sense uh, to us. And that those who pursue the person should encourage them and warn them from continuing in their path of destruction. That said, a new confrontation is not, in our, our view, necessary for the person to listen to the church. Now, I want you to think for just a minute. I'm going to have Matt respond to the next question, but I want you to think about this. We, we think this is super important. I said we believe the church has a nonverbal voice. Are there any other places in the Bible that that is true? Yes. Think for just a moment about how the Bible speaks about the silent sermon that the whole church preaches here at Grace every Sunday when we take the Lord's Supper. The Scripture speaks of the church collective 
partaking in the Lord's Supper as a silent sermon that is proclaimed by the whole congregation. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. As often as you do this, you, plural, proclaim the Lord's death. Well, while you're doing that, you're actually saying zero words. It's a silent sermon. We believe that Jesus in Matthew 18 means for us to understand that the informed church carries a new dimension or degree for the sinner, should carry, I don't think always does carry, we can't micromanage anybody's repentance, but it should carry a new degree of the weight and the severity and the danger of continuing in your path of sin. We believe the practical import of verse 17 is that even without a verbal word from the church to the person in view, he or she should hear, he or she, she should listen to the brokenhearted concern of the informed saints. Okay, that's our answer to what we believe Jesus is saying in Matthew 18, 17 about listening to the church. More could be said. That's our understanding of the passage, which has, we believe, matured over the years. That's not what we formerly used to say in our pastoral council. Oh, man, time. Hmm. Yeah, I'm going to say this. If any are required by the text to confront or engage the sinner, then it would necessarily follow that all are required to do so. If you take verse 17 that way, you have to take it either all or you're making up how many. It's an argument from silence. And we don't believe that Jesus means for us to make up arbitrary numbers or percentages of the members that must talk to the person. <clears throat> it does not seem to us that Jesus, uh, uh, let me, if Jesus wanted every member of the body to talk to the person, we believe he would have said so. If he wanted a specific number or percentage of the church to talk to the person, we believe he would have said so. Instead, he instructs not the church, but the person to listen to the church. That's the direction of the instruction from Jesus. The two or three witnesses in verse 16 are also representatives of the church. Our aim in the primer was to remove, as I said, any and all unbiblical expectations on members who suppose they cannot vote to affirm and a recommendation to excommunicate a member unless they talk to the person personally themselves about the sinful issue. We do not believe that's in accord with Jesus' teaching. We do believe that Jesus' words in verse 17 of Matthew 18 should be taken to mean that if any have talked to the person, then all have done so. If he refuses to listen, then Jesus has told the whole church how they must respond. We believe that's excommunication. Let them be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. That was question one. Okay, question two. Matt's going to help me with this one. Should a person who has been excommunicated by the move of the congregation to affirm the elder's recommendation, should that person be permitted to be physically present in a church gathering? This is a question we've gotten in every case of church discipline, and for good reason, because the words remove and separate are in biblical passages. 
So the question is, how should we understand Christ's instruction to let him be to you as a Gentile tax collector? Should an excommunicated person be permitted to attend church services? Our response is, we believe the removal of an excommunicated, excommunicated person is from the church's membership and the Lord's table. We understand that's not satisfactory to everybody's understanding of Scripture, but it's also not coming out of thin air. 1 Corinthians 5.2 says, you have become arrogant, and have not mourned instead, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. Now, I'm not going to Greek out on you, uh, but there's no definitive indication in that word, meso, removed from your midst, that they have to be physically on the other side of that wall. Take them out of the building, take them out of the gathering, but remove them, we believe, from the identified fabric of the body and permissibility welcomed to the Lord's table. Okay? Good. Another way of saying that is that there are visitors with us every Sunday who are not uh, members of this congregation. Presence in the room does not equate with membership in the church. When a person becomes a member of the church, it's not that they gain entry into this room, Instead, they gain entry into the membership of the church, which includes a variety of things. Let me just read uh, one way of putting it. Uh, we, elders, or maybe I should say I, Matt, have always assumed that this command, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, that comes from Matthew 18, also included the rest of the privileges and responsibilities of church membership. For example, after excommunication, the body is no longer to fulfill the one another commands with this particular individual. The body is no longer to see to it that there is no root of bitterness so far as this person goes. The elders and pastors are no longer spiritually accountable for this person's soul before the Lord, etc., etc., etc. All of the aspects of membership no longer apply to this individual after they've been removed from the membership. We believe this is significant. Said the other way, we rightly make a big deal about all these responsibilities and privileges on the way into membership when someone joins the church, and we believe it's still a big deal on the way out. So, saying it briefly, we understand, let him be to you a Gentile and a tax collector, and the other passages that Jordan referenced in the New Testament, not to mean the person is to be prohibited from entering the building but instead to mean they are removed from the membership of the congregation. And that applies in all the ways that I was just mentioning. Yeah, so Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Thess 2 Thessalonians 3, 14, are passages that use that remove language or treat them as a Gentile and tax collector, an outsider, that kind of language. And... <clears throat> I'll speak for myself. I see no explicit command that the person, if disciplined, cannot be present in a congregational gathering of the entire ecclesia from which they were excommunicated or any other congregation. Most scholars in church history agree with that. Jay Kimball, in his book, Church Discipline, the person is to be removed from the membership of the church. It does not mean that a person cannot attend a church service. Rather, it involves removing that person from the membership roles and excluding that person from partaking of the Lord's Supper. 
That brother, by the way, wrote an exegetical commentary on the Greek New Testament. He, he knows the words and the range of meaning. A.H. Strong, similar type of reputable scholar in his systematic theology, said, this, this, I believe, is evidence that the congregation should see as a possible needle of grace in a haystack of sin that the Holy Spirit might be at work. Listen carefully. Is the person repentant? Strong said, the truly penitent man will rather beg the church to exclude him in order that it may be free itself from the charge of harboring iniquity. He will accept exclusion with humility. He will love the church that excludes him, and he will continue to attend its worship. He will in due time seek and receive restoration. Excommunication implies nothing if it does not imply exclusion from the communion, the Lord's Lord's table. In his commentary on the Greek text, Anthony Thistleton said, a formal state of mourning would stamp the life and worship of the church objectively and publicly in a way which would thereby make it intolerable for the offender to remain and would then in all probability have made his own choice to leave. The church doesn't require him not to come. He may make his own choice because he sees or she sees the grief that his or her unrepentant sin is causing on the hearts of all of God's people. Maybe they will choose to leave, Thistleton writes. Hence, Paul follows the main verb with a final or purposive clause in order that, in order that he may be removed. A.T. Robertson, who it was said could have reproduced the entire Greek New Testament from memory and 95% of the apparatus, that's the bottom little notes of alternate words that might be in there, he knew his Greek Bible, said Paul instructions, Paul's instructions apply only to the social meals between believers. So we're not just to be light with a person who's been excommunicated. Social, chummy. John Calvin, Paul's instructions were concerned specifically with communion, but did not apply to common meals. It's not sinful to sit down and have a breakfast with somebody who's been excommunicated. So Calvin would say, and I would agree. Tom Schreiner, Paul means that they are not permitted to take the Lord's Supper and enjoy fellowship with the church as they previously did. So of all the exegesis and application, we would say most of church history agrees with us that it's not necessary that the excommunicated person not be permitted to attend a service. Personally, we think it is pastoral care on a case-by-case basis, depending on the situation at hand. We think it actually benefits the person to listen to the gospel, not impedes their repentance. Number three, they do get a little quicker. Church-wide tribunal, something like Matthew 18, 17 does talk about the person listening to the church. Well, how can that happen if they're not in front of the whole church? So should there be something like a collective assembly of the congregation and the accused party having an opportunity just to listen to the church. Uh, So the question is, should the church have a tribunal hearing or judicial hearing? Should all the church have all the facts and therefore serve as jury as the unrepentant is on the witness stand? Our answer would be, we do not believe that something like an all-church meeting accords with what Jesus said. 
The informed church, as I argued from 1 Corinthians 11, Lord's Supper, does have a collective voice in any one member who appeals to the person to repent of sin. So our summary answer would be, any member represents every member. Therefore, not all members have to go have a personal conversation with the person to vote to affirm an elder's recommendation. That's, not, that's an unbiblical expectation on your own conscience that we don't believe you can find a verse to support that weight on your conscience. You actually can have zero conversations with such a person, provided you know, getting a little ahead of myself, that the facts have been confirmed, the Deuteronomic standard and the Matthew 18, 16 uh, standard by Jesus. Question four, well-meaning members. This is a fantastic question. We wrote in the primer the word well-meaning. It was brought to our attention that that word does not mean what we thought that it meant. So we were well-meaning and wrong. <laughs> if you say that a person's actions are well-meaning, you mean that they intend to be helpful or kind, but they are unsuccessful or cause problems. Not what we intended to communicate. <laughs> the person is not the problem. In their sincere approach of Christ-like love to help a person who's been accused, they may not believe that it's accurate or they may not have enough resources to discern if they think the accusation is accurate. But in sincerity and out of the love to Christ and love for the person and love for his church, they go to him and talk to him. That's what we meant by that's a well-meaning effort. We do not think that they are often in the best position to discern the person's repentance, nor do we believe Jesus expects that one to be the discerner of the person's repentance. So the primer definitely needs to be updated in light of uh, that good question. And we are thankful for the careful reading that produced that question, caught the, the specificity of that word. We certainly do not mean to imply that well-meaning church member is contributing negatively to a Matthew 18 process in any of the four stages. It was our ignorance of the word having any negative connotation that led to it being put in the, in the primer. We see, rather, all who are willing to take the initiative to pursue the wayward with Christ's word and his gospel love as grace-filled and therefore positive influences. That word needs to be updated. When a church member hears a positive report, let's say you go to somebody who's been recommended for excommunication, and you hear a positive report that seems and smells and sounds to you like genuine repentance, I think it's appropriate to rejoice. And we believe that Jesus' words in Matthew 18, 15 to 17 give the needed guidance on what should happen next. You should direct the person backwards through the passage. Go tell this to the people in verse 16, the two or three. Go tell this to the people in verse 15 who, who came to you with the first confrontation about the fault they found that Jesus calls sin. Those who are privy to the facts, verse 16, can help assess the person's professed repentance by the details of his or her confession in accord with the details of their sinful action. 
you have anything to add there? Matt's playing Candy Crush. No. <laughs> All right. Let me just illustrate why, uh, in practical terms. By the time stage three comes around, there's been a whole bunch of background care. You have the initial person going, then you have two or three going. Usually, in the case of this church, there are lots and lots of meetings, many hours, many interchanges, a lot of care already provided. And you guys are all aware that sin sometimes is not immediately detectable. Let me read one verse that makes that crystal clear. This is Psalm 55, 21. His speech was smoother than butter, but his heart was war. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. So sometimes the psalmist is telling us there are words that come out smooth as butter and soft as oil, and they sound so good. And it's only with the passage of time and continued interaction that it turns out that what you thought was smooth and soft, good-sounding words, oh, it sounds like repentance. Only with the passage of time, it turns out, oh, no, those words were war. Those words were drawn swords. So if you go meet with a person one time after the church is made known, or the, the matter is made known to the church, you will probably, or maybe I should say in many cases, you're, you may well hear those soft-as-butter words. But it's not, it's not really realistic to expect to be able to discern that in a single sit-down conversation that, ah, what sounded like butter was war, if I can speak that way. Helpful. I'm going to make an impromptu decision that's probably going to go over like a lead balloon that this session is going to go till 1010. That's going to really impact a lot of things that I can't even see the dominoes, let alone how they will fall. Nursery, we need at least one person who can stand in that doorway area that can direct people just to come on in and keep listening to the conversation. And I don't know what else is going to happen I'm very sorry. I sincerely apologize. I think this is valuable for the good of our body over the long term. So we're going to keep going. Number five, blindly vote to excommunicate. Now, everybody's hung up on my little impromptu decision there. I want you, I want you to dial in and maybe we'll get done quicker. Blindly vote to excommunicate. Let's say you know nothing of the details. All you know is the one hearing of the one reading from the one elder at the special called church meeting about the recommendation for excommunication. You know no more. You've had no more talks with any other member. You hadn't gone to a prayer meeting, uh, which happens almost every time a recommendation like this comes. It's a spontaneous group of two or three that just devote themselves to half an hour of prayer for the Lord to break through and work. You hadn't been to that, hadn't had a talk. You know nothing. How do you then vote on this recommendation? So here's the question. How is the church supposed to give a clear conscience vote on excommunication, confirming if the sinner has refused to listen to the church when we have severely limited facts and are asked not to approach the person individually? Two parts of that question I want to touch on. We are not, not, not suggesting to any member that he or she must not approach the person. We are not suggesting that. Anyone is welcome to do so. As we mentioned earlier, we do not believe Jesus meant that it is incumbent upon all to do so. Even so, all members can still vote to excommunicate with a clear conscience because to refuse to listen, as we said, to any 
who are representing the told church is to refuse to listen to all. It doesn't have to be the sound waves out of your voice box that they refuse to listen to. We are a body. If a hand or an eye or a foot goes and talks, we've all talked. And I can assure you, that has definitely been the case in every discipline situation in Grace Church's history. The appeal from the one is predicated on the matter having reached stage three. So if one goes, they're doing so because the church has been informed. That person would not have made that approach unless the church had been informed. That's why they're going in that since we are all going. Tommy wrote something that I thought was super helpful. If there's a vote on excommunication pending, the elders and the care team are clearly yet sober, soberly saying, here's Tommy's words, the person recommended for excommunication has not listened nor repented. If, however, we see clear signs of repentance in the weeks and days leading up to the vote, we will absolutely notify the body and not continue with an excommunication vote because it appears the person is listening. I think their listening would sound like what Strong said in his commentary. I know it's hard to remember. He said that person would be begging the church to put them out because they've taken this, all this time, these many hours, weeks, months of no listening. And then they finally do in the 11th hour, praise God, Jesus saves thieves on crosses in the 11th hour. It can be sincere. I think their sincerity would be, I'm so sorry for all the years I took off of all of your lives for all this time of my hard-heartedness. I do not blame you for moving forward. You probably should. Now, I just coached what we might hear. That's fine. Tell them to go talk to the two or three about the facts. And then it can be assessed if it accords with the activity of their sinfulness. Anything you want to say on that one? Yeah. I think uh, there were two questions. One of the questions had to do with, paraphrasing the question, how are we the church supposed to discern if the person is repentant? Man, this is so important. Let me say the question again, and then I'll tell you, I think there's an assumption. Thank you, brother. Here it is. How is the church supposed to give a clear conscience vote in excommunication, et cetera, et cetera, when we have severely limited facts and are asked not to approach a person? The idea is how is, the, how is the church supposed to discern if the person is repentant? There's an assumption in the question, I think, even if it's not assumed in the question, it's important to clarify now. This is the simplest way I know how to say it. The church at large, the church as a whole, is not supposed to discern whether the person is repentant. Let me read to you what I mean. <clears throat> to be sure, someone is to discern whether or not the person is listening to the church. The question is who is supposed to do that job, discerning. The question, I think the question that we received, assumes that it's the church as a whole who's to discern whether or not the person is repentant. But we do not believe this is what the text, Matthew 18, teaches. 
In contrast, here's the answer to the question, who's supposed to do the discerning? We believe that the two or three witnesses are the ones who are to fill this role, this discerning, the same ones who have already confirmed the facts, the same ones involved in all the care, the same ones who have seen many times the soft words turn out to be war, those people. Moreover, and this is super important, there's a connection. If you assume that the church is to discern the repentance after it's made known publicly, if you assume that, that's the church's job. The church is responsible to do that, and they have, their conscience is bound that they must do this. If you assume that, that would naturally lead one to believe that the church needs all the facts in order to do that job. The people who are supposed to discern repentance need to be very well informed because we believe that the whole church at large are not the ones to discern repentance, that also implies that the whole church at large does not need to have all the facts. I'm talking about hours and hours and hours. Nathan mentioned in a public statement last week he had over 100 pages of care notes, okay, like counseling notes. The whole church doesn't need to know all those facts because the whole church isn't meant to discern the person's repentance. There are people who are supposed to be doing that kind of discerning. That would be the people with all the facts i.e. the two or three witnesses. Okay. I completely agree. Jesus could have put the Deuteronomic code in verse 17. He put it in verse 16. Those are the discerners uh, of the persons listening. We've talked about that question. We're on this question. <laughs> Engage the person, yes or no? Do we go talk to them? Do we not talk to them? In some cases, this is, this is true. In some cases, we, Grace Church, have been encouraged by the elders to reach out, and in others, we are encouraged in the opposite direction. This leads to confusion. We agree that this has led to confusion, and we do apologize for contributing to it. I'm saying on behalf of the elders, because I know they agree entirely, and I'm saying on my behalf, I'm sorry. I think we bound the consciences of God's people without verses of the Bible to do it. When we said things like, you all go after them. You all talk to them. We don't hear Jesus saying that. So, we are growing, we hope, the slide reads, and we believe the primer reflects a more faithful understanding and application of the text. Any, as we've said on repeat, may pursue the sinner but not all are required to do so. And as I mentioned earlier, generally, we as elders would encourage natural relationships. Those who are closest to the person already have a lot of kinship, a lot of water under the bridge, a lot of time, a lot of rapport. Those would be the people that we would most encourage to try to pursue the person. Number seven of nine, uh, discerning whether or not they've listened to the church. Without the detailed specifics of the sinful behavior, how are we, the church, supposed to interpret the sinner has refused to listen? Well, Matt, Matt spoke to this just a moment ago. Um, this is a very good question. This is important. This question comes up multiple times in every situation of discipline in Grace's history. This is a very good question. Here's our response in a little more detail even than what Matt just said. If Jesus desires the person's repentance and his teaching on excommunication from the church. Let me back up. 
if Jesus desires the person's repentance and his teaching on excommunication from the church does not mean that the entire congregation must know the detailed specifics of the sinner's sin, which is what Matt just said, we believe is, is accurate. The whole church does not need to know and Jesus did not instruct anyone to give all the facts to the whole congregation. How then are we, the church, supposed to interpret that the sinner must uh, listen to the church? Here's our answer. As a result of our congregation's reasonable request, it does make perfect sense to us why the request keeps coming, to know more, we have sought the Lord. That may sound like preacher talk to you, paraphrase, Lots of agonizing prayer. Lots of staring at three verses in the Bible. 15, 16, 17. Lots of labor. We've looked at the relevant passages and we have decided to share much more specifics with the body in the last two recommendations. We thought that our previous approach was in keeping with the Matthew passage. And we thought it was a demonstration that we do desire repentance and restoration without hanging a lifelong shame around a person's neck like the scarlet letter that some would be unable not to see even if the person repented, which is why we haven't shared more detail in past cases. We want them to repent. We want them not to be seen as what they once were. Now we believe that we should categorize sinful behavior biblically and share specific examples of how the person has habitually and unrepentantly continued in such a pattern even when one or two or three have repeatedly urged him or her to repent from those specific sins with those specific passages of scripture. Every sin that was enumerated last Sunday, I know it's a lot to take in, hard to hear, we expect zero people to remember any of the specifics. But every sin that was enumerated last Sunday in our member meeting was threefold. Specific, included biblical references for why it's explicitly sinful behavior, and each example shared represented a long-standing habitual pattern of sin, not a once or infrequent matter. And fourth, these are matters for which the person has refused to express repentance. Not only not done so, defiantly resisted doing so. So that's a, that's a change in our own approach. Um, anything you want to add to that one? Okay, question eight. When should this matter be brought to the church? As you all know, as church members, those of you who are members, you know that we have given updates to the body that are not Matthew 18, 17. In many, many uh, membership matters, care matters of the church. So when is it that the church is supposed to be brought into the matter? It's a fantastic question. Uh, that's not an answer. That's actually the exact same question. Here's the answer. <laughs> Matthew eighteen seventeen, stage three. That's a short answer. But we do not believe that this is the only time that a church may be brought into some kind of care matter that may involve a sin situation in our midst. There are lots of good reasons, we believe, to inform and update a congregation to pray while facts are still being confirmed. But in cases of corrective discipline, Matthew 18, 17 should only happen following 
the confirmation of the facts, no longer speculative, and the person refusing to listen, not prior. That's precisely why in every previous update that the elders have shared with any care matter in our congregation, it was accompanied only by general information and an explicit articulation that this is not Matthew 18, 17. We've said that. This is not a recommendation for excommunication. Why would we update the body when we're not doing that verse? Simply, we want more Christians to pray. So therefore, we typically share periodic updates, and those tend to happen every eight weeks at our Sunday evening member meetings when it's just the church family. People that we know love us and will pray for us and want nothing but the best for us. That's when those updates come, even when it's not Matthew 18, 17. Uh, agreed with everything you just said. Uh, and just to put the spirit of, of why we would make some kind of update to the body that's not a stage three church discipline, Matthew 18 kind of thing. Uh, let's just take the example. We'll say something tragic happens in a marriage. There's a separation. We didn't want there to be a separation, but there is one. The church is going to notice. It will be obvious. Some things are not uh, discreet. So we as elders then have some options. We could say nothing and let the obvious matter play out, which we think would breed a lot of confusion for the whole body. So we've chosen not to do that. We want to help the body. We want to be shepherds. We want to help. Or we could rush into stage three discipline and say, we are bringing this matter before the church. We are making this known. Let's see if the person listens. The problem with that is, at that stage, it's not always clear what's going on. So let me read you Proverbs 18, 17. The first to plead his case, excuse me, the first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. So we say in our, our culture, uh, yeah, well, that's his side of the story. Okay, so sometimes the passage of time and digging in deeper is required to really know what's going on. But they're already maybe separated or some other kind of obvious situation is happening. So we don't know whether there's unrepentant sin and where it's located. We, we don't, God forbid, we don't want to rush into a conclusion on a matter like that. And yet, this loud situation is happening, and so we've chosen to update the body in general terms and say, this is not stage three. This is what's happening. We want you to pray. We're going to continue to give care, and may the Lord give clarity on exactly what's happening here. Okay. And in no way do we think anyone's lack of repentance is owing to more prayer and more information shared with the church. So it's not impeding anybody's repentance for more people to be praying for them, um, which I think is important to say. I want to say something about this question before I say it. This is the last question, and we're going to be done before 1010. So sorry, all the people that did whatever just happened. I'm asking, I paused and I just asked the Lord to help me not to cry. The real hard issue at Grace Church right now is not 
a bulldozing through biblical passages to try to practically apply the Lord's teaching in a way that's inconsistent with Scripture. Are we doing it perfectly? I'm under no delusion that's the case. Will we do another Q&A someday and say, hey, we've grown a little more, we're doing something a little different than we did last time? Probably. It's with our nose in the book. It's with our faces at the ground in prayer. It's not perfect. So the real egregious situation here, and I'm going to say this to you all out of love, and I'm putting myself in the boat also. I'm not talking at you, I'm talking with you. You know what questions we almost never get? How is she doing? What can we do to help? I'm not suggesting those questions don't exist. And a lot of people do a lot, serve a lot. This is a beautiful body. So much goes on behind the scenes that I don't even know about. But what I do know about is beautiful. It's a beautiful church. Uh, One of my friends who came a few weeks ago and worshiped with us said, man, you guys do not have a beautiful church building, but you have a really beautiful church. (laughs) Yes, I agree. Here's the real egregious against the Lord, against our brothers and sisters problem. People are suffering as a result of habitual unrepentant sin. And sometimes, sometimes, with good questions for good reasons that we're not at all opposed to, and I hope this Q&A demonstrates that. We're fine-tuned on our personal interpretation of how a passage should be practically applied and miss the reality. Aiken is in the camp. A sibling is hurting. Somebody's being repeatedly wounded by the sin of another. That should be the thing that gets us the most prayer energized and attention focused. So that's my appeal. So let's be a body that binds up the wounded and tries to, with the Lord, heal the brokenhearted. All right, that leads to my last question. What if your convictions differ? What if you totally disagree with the elders? about how the practical applications should be applied. Well, I would say, continue to help us, pray for us. We're not at all opposed. We understand that people differ on some of these particulars. We also do believe that we're standing in accord with the vast majority of church history throughout the ages in how we're seeing and discerning and applying. Should a church member separate his or her interpretation of how discipline should be handled from the recommendation to excommunicate an unrepentant person. So if it's confirmed, we've got an unrepentant person in our midst, but you disagree on the particulars of how it should be applied in the discipline process, should you still vote to excommunicate? We believe the answer is a resounding yes. We recommend that the church vote to support the elder's recommendation, provided two things. Our interpretation is discernible from the words of the Bible. We're just making stuff up. And it's supported by a substantial swath of Bible-believing Christians in church history. So in the matter of ongoing unrepentant sin being made clear to the church, 
which in these particular cases we have, in an effort to be clear, as I said, been far more specific, then I would say you cannot, you ought not, is this an ought? This is an ought, I believe. You ought not opt not to vote. That's what I would say. If your quandary is that you view the best application of the biblical passages to be different than the way your elders interpret the text, that should not be the reason to opt not to vote. I know it stands as a surprise to many of us. It's possible that we're wrong. I've said that on repeat. It's also possible that you're wrong. (laughs) So we believe that you could and should support the recommendation provided our interpretation of the Word of God is discernible from the actual words of the Bible and supported by many of our brothers and sisters in church history. On both of these issues, we've tried to show A, the sinful activity is chapter and verse verifiable from the Bible. B, we are not alone in how we believe the discipline process should unfold according to Scripture. In Grace Church's history, some have abstained from voting because they see the how of discipline playing out differently than the elders do biblically, not because they thought the person was not living in unrepentant sin. In every stage three discipline recommendation at Grace Church, I can say three things have been true. The person's persistent, stiff-necked sinfulness has been observed and confronted by many and the repeated appeals to embrace the power of the gospel have been left unheeded. That's been consistent. Number two, the recommendation has contained some expressions in the past, far less clear, in the present far more clear, of the specificity of the person's sin. And number three, the elder's understanding of the key text and the practical approach of the discipline process is consistent, as I've mentioned, with many of our brothers and sisters in church history. So in such cases, we do believe that a church member should separate his or her interpretation of how the discipline should be handled from the recommendation to excommunication. And put it in another way, when choosing between harboring an unrepentant sinner or voting to excommunicate them, based on the differing interpretation of the practical expression, I would say the choice should be clear. Don't harbor the sin You can pursue them, try to walk with them. And here's the good news, everybody. Stage three is not the end of the passage. They can still be restored. First Corinthians five, 2 Corinthians. That's what we want. And so if we, God forbid, get it wrong, guess what? The Lord will prove the genuineness of the person's repentance. They'll be restored. We'll even apologize for what we got wrong. Nobody's being railroaded through a fast-track process, I can assure you that. Uh, So think on these things, pray on these things. This audio is available. We have two podcasts at Grace Church. Thank you, Ben Bailey. One is all the sermons. One is all these 915 sessions. It's called Grow Teaching or something like that. You can subscribe to it. This is available if you want to re-listen to it. If you've asked a question that wasn't touched today, Our intention is to respond to every question. We have received several about the recommendations. We will respond to those people personally, and any we miss today, we will aim to respond to as well. If we don't, please help us try to be helpful. It's certainly not intentional oversight. Anything you wanna add?
Would you pray for our congregation? Father, thank you that uh, you're trustworthy. Thank you that you foresaw all these heartbreaking situations. Uh, the Lord Jesus foresaw people refusing to listen to one and then two or three and then to the church. He knew, you knew this would come. Uh, these heartbreaking situations in your mysterious yet good providence uh, are not outside of your sovereign control. And yet they are heartbreaking and painful. So we ask particularly for the, all the individuals of this church that none of us would have a root of bitterness that springing up defiles many. None of us would be unwilling to listen to a brother or sister trying to win us back and help us to turn from sin. That all of us would grow in maturity in, uh, as Paul said in Ephesians, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Help us do that, particularly with formative and corrective discipline. We pray for those in the church being sinned against grievously, sheep being bitten repeatedly. God, we pray for your, your, uh, your righteous indignation to be stirred, to prevent oppression. Lord, do that because of who you are, because of your character, like the psalmist would cry out and say, Lord, deliver, deliver, stop this evil from happening. God, we ask that you would do that. And uh, we pray that uh, as we gather now to hear again the word preached to us, you'd give us humble hearts, ears to hear, and cause us to take another step in obedience to Christ, love to him, pursuit of him, uh, so that he'll be honored. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.